I've noticed a number of peculiar incidents among the members of the student body, all having to do with rock and roll music. Now, if you don't think this song is the greatest song ever, I will fight you. Thanksgiving's almost here, and we're in a generous mood. Today, we'll pardon some musical acts we consider turkeys. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Koch. We're going to pick the one redeeming song from artists that have otherwise had a less than stellar musical career. And we remember the life and legacy of Leonard Cohen. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. I hereby pardon Courage so that he can live out the rest of his days in peace and tranquility. That's because in keeping with the long-standing tradition, Pumpkin and Pecan are hereby granted a full and unconditional, unconditional presidential pardon. I'm granting this turkey a permanent reprieve after many years in the coop. He's on his way to a farm in Virginia. This is Sound Opinions, and you know, Greg, there has been a long-standing holiday tradition at the White House around Thanksgiving when the president comes out and pardons a big old turkey, sparing his neck from the chopping block, saving it from the dinner table. Uh, one assumes another turkey's been sacrificed, and somewhere somebody gets turkey for dinner. Uh, it, it's a classic tradition. It is, Jim. Uh, in, in that spirit, we're going to pardon some musical turkeys of our own. By that, we mean you know bands or artists that we think have had pretty bad careers, uh, certainly no better than mediocre, but they've got at least one song or maybe an album that redeems them. We're not talking about one-hit wonders, but we're talking about artists with otherwise long, successful histories that we nonetheless think are turkeys. Yeah, that we wouldn't listen to unless we were being paid to do so. Exactly. Jim, uh, why don't you start us off? Greg, I've got to go with a band named for the city you and I love. We've long been making the case that Chicago, the city, is one of the great musical meccas anywhere in the world. However, Chicago, the band, boy, does not live up to the legacy of this city otherwise. I know you'll defend them in the early days when Terry Kath was on guitar, and he died from an accidental self-inflicted gunshot wound about 78. I can't even defend the Kath years. I think, generally speaking, when you look at this idea of a Chicago band building on the roots here of, of blues and uh, R&B and soul and adding horns, right? You know, go to Blood, Sweat, and Tears, especially <laughs> that first record that Al Cooper was on. You know, yeah, Chicago had horns. They also had lame melodies, bad vocalists, that horrible, you know, prom theme sort of, uh, you know, slow dance vibe going on. And, and some of the worst toupees in the history of fake hair, okay? One of my favorite lines ever was from a Rolling Stone review said, Chicago the band is the best argument ever for birth control. That was very classic. That's like 71, 72. However, 
I will defend uh, this band for one song, 25 or 6 to 4. I know it's a dumb song, but it does have a great riff, and I love the horns on this song. Uh, you know, all right, so this is the one time I will give Chicago the band a part. Chicago, 25 or 6 to 4. What a bad band. What a, and they left Chicago, like, even before the, the first album, well, right? You're, you're so wrong, though, about them being a bad band. I mean, those early records are really good. I'll, no, I'll, no, I'll defend them. No, I will not. defend uh, the CTA, as they were known. Yeah, Chicago the Home Boys of Chicago. Yeah. Yep, uh, they, they were pretty good in those early days. With Terry Kath, great band. Uh, I'm going to pick a band that... Uh, emerged during the so-called alternative rock era, Jim. Uh, there was a lot of bad bands oh, that yes. uh, came up under the rubric of alternative rock. Was I got one coming later. Basically a commercial radio format, right? right. Not, not really a genre of music. Modern rock, they so called it. So you, you, you got these bands who were clearly commercially oriented. They were playing, you know, uh, basically a new version of corporate rock. Uh, exhibit A is Stone Temple Pilots. Yeah. Banned all over the radio in the early 90s. Here's why the word grunge had to go somewhere and die. <laughs> Because of bands like this. <laughs> Taking what came up in Seattle, you know, Mud Honey, Soundgarden, yeah. these bands that were doing and ruining really it. good versions of, you know, this kind of hard rock that was rooted in 70s metal and, and punk and, uh, and, and turning it into a commercial, um, you know, jingle music. Uh, the Stone Temple Pilots were Exhibit A. They had songs like uh, uh, Plush and Interstate Love Song that were all over radio uh, for years. But they did redeem themselves with one good song, and uh, I'm going to play it. It it came from their 1999 album. This is well past their prime era. 
their their fourth record, imaginatively titled Number Four, uh-huh. uh, produced one great song. And it's called Sour Girl. And the reason I like it is that it sounds like nothing else in their catalog, really. <laughs> um, so does it count if a turkey isn't sounding like what made it a turkey? You know, I, I'm going to go with it. Uh, the one thing that uh, the band had going for it, I, I think they wrote some pretty catchy hooks. I mean, they were undeniably... Uh, melodic songs that they wrote. Uh, Dean DeLeo, the guitar player, Robert DeLeo, his brother on bass, uh, wrote a lot of the music in this band, and uh, they, they came up with some pretty catchy catchy choruses. Uh, this song has one, but it's dreamier, a uh, little bit more subtle. This is an acoustic song rather than that heavy testosterone-laden rock for mm. which they were known. So here's one track that Scott Weiland couldn't screw up. You know, he actually did a pretty good <laughs> job with it. Uh, it's called Sour Girl from Stone Temple Pilots on Sound Opinions. Sour Girl from uh, Stone Temple Pilots. I forgive them uh, for that one <laughs> song. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. Uh, here's a band I, I can't forgive. They are responsible for so much lousiness in rock and roll for so long, and yet there's a real generational divide, Greg. I, I'm about two years too old to have ever appreciated Kiss, but I had younger cousins, and the, you know they were the gateway drug for my younger cousins into rock and roll. <laughs> You drive us wild, we'll drive you crazy had something to do with comic books. This is long before video games, right? Even at the impressionable age of whatever I was, 13, 12, 14, right? I, I just dressing up like a comic book character to play rock and roll seemed absurd to me. The tongue and Gene Simmons. I don't think my, my political consciousness was not yet fully <laughs> formed, but I knew that these guys were not kind to women and they were ridiculous and absurd and obnoxious at the same time. However, 
Uh, Detroit Rock City is a great song. <laughs> it's a really great song. Number one, you know, you and I both love Detroit. After Chicago, you know, America's probably second greatest rock city, you know. Besides New York and L.A., yeah, they get all the attention, right? But so much great music from Detroit, and there's such a wonderful working-class rock and roll vibe. Kiss really took off there, although they were from New York. They always appreciated it. And, and you know, Detroit Rock City is a fairly absurd song. You know, the kid's getting jacked up. He is driving uh, to a concert on a Saturday night. He's a little uptight, Greg. You know, and the radio is the only light on in the car. Uh, and then he hears his song, and it pulls him through. It makes him get up, and then it makes him get down, right? Mm-hmm. But then if you dig a little deeper, it's actually about a real KISS fan who was going to one of their concerts who died in a car accident. Uh, surprising, uh, you know, sort of empathy from KISS that you don't often hear. And 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 the fun footnote here is this was a single with, you know, the Peter Chris throwaway Beth on the B-side. Mm-hmm. And then it was Beth that exploded. You know, you know, Greg, I hear you calling, but I just can't come home right now. You know, I just, what the worst? Oh, my. This is a bad band. I'm feeling guilty pardoning them even as I play it. <laughs> However, what a great riff this song has. Detroit Rock City by Kiss. Greg, if you want to uh, keep your Thanksgiving dinner down, whatever you do, don't go on YouTube and look up Foo Fighters covering this song with Paul Stanley, because you'll lose it. <laughs> You're not going to enjoy your dinner after that. You got another turkey to pardon? Oh, yeah. We got we got lots of turkeys today, uh, Jim, that we want to pardon. And uh, one is uh, by an artist named Coolio, who actually uh, it seems like a, a heck of a guy. He's a chef. Today, we're going to show you how to cook when your friends come over to watch the game. Yeah, you know, he's got his own little web uh, web show. and uh, I like reading interviews with him. He's funny. Entertaining guy and, and clearly made something of himself. Made nine albums wow. uh, and sold a bunch of singles, six top 40 singles. So the guy had a very successful career. And I found myself going back over, you know, Coolio's recordings the other day <laughs> to refresh myself, you know, because I, I thought you See, know people I, he's, wonder why he's we not get, really a turkey. People wonder why we get paid to do this, right? And, right. But having to spend an hour with Coolio's nine albums, and then I realized I don't really like any of these albums right, anymore. Right. You know, they they really don't hold up. You don't have to stand on the corner and slang because you got your own thing. You can't help me if you can't help yourself. You better make a laugh. Slip 
Uh, that said, he does have one great moment, and that is Gangsta's Paradise. Yeah. Uh, that single that came out in 95, huge single. That's probably what he's most known for. Uh, that song really holds up. It, it gets me every time. It's kind of like this combination of gospel and gangsta rap, yeah. which it, it sounds absurd, but really works. You Be- can't listen to it without waving your arms <laughs> in the air. Got a little help from Stevie Wonder, too, right? Uh, yeah. The sample of uh, Pastime Paradise. Uh, is is a key hook in the in in the uh, in the song, but he sort of reworks it. Um, he turns this song, uh, this this sort of gospely vibe, this hymn, uh, into a uh, a parable about the tragedy of of the gang life. Uh, you know, it starts very dramatically. This is a very operatic track. He quotes Psalm twenty three four as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and then he, it morphs into I take a look at my life and realize there's nothing left, and it tells this very dramatic it could it could be like a play like a three-part play the way it plays it out in in the song so there's a lot of action packed into these three four short minutes uh, a lot of drama and, and and it's clearly the mountaintop of coolio's otherwise forgettable career here is gangsta's paradise from coolio on sound opinions as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I take a look at my life and realize there's nothing left. Cause I've been blasting and laughing so long that even my mama thinks that my mind is gone. But I ain't never crossed a man that didn't deserve it. Me be treated like a punk, you know that's unheard of. You better watch how you're talking and where you're walking. Or you and your homies might be lying in chalk. I really hate the trip, but I gotta lope. As they croak, I see myself in the pistol smoke, fool. I'm the kind of G the little homies wanna be like on my knees in the night, saying prayers in the street light. Julio with Gangsta's Paradise, a turkey I want to pardon on sound opinions. When do you think the last time that was played on any public radio station was? <laughs> uh, well, let's see. It came out in 95. I would guess maybe once in 1995. I was going to say never, but yeah. uh, uh, stick around for even more musical turkeys being pardoned, spared the chopping block, and later we'll remember very much not a turkey, singer-songwriter Leonard Cohen, and some other musicians we've recently lost. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And this week, in the spirit of Thanksgiving, we are pardoning musical turkeys, bands that we generally cannot stand, but uh, they've put out at least one good song or one that we can go to bat for. So far, we have redeemed uh, the band Chicago, Coolio, Stone Temple Pilots, and Kiss, if only for one song. Uh, Greg, what do you got next? Jim, I have got the band Kings of Leon next. (laughs) That's a bad band. Once you write a song and sing a song called Sex on Fire, there is just no going back. There's no redemption left. That's on the short list. (laughs) If we have to do the 10 worst songs ever, that's way up there. You know, talk about jumping the shark. That was Kings of Leon's. I mean, a lot of people disagree with me. I know that. Yeah. Uh, a huge hit for them, obviously. So they just keep on milking that formula. Know? But I do stand by uh, this band's first album. Um, I was a big fan when this band came out in uh, 2000, circa 2003. An album called Youth and Young Manhood came out that year. And what it did was present these uh, Southern guys who had some of that holy roller boogie thing going on yeah. because, you know, they were preacher's sons. And, yeah. and they and they spent time on the road in these sort of traveling uh, caravans uh, singing these types of fervent songs, evangelical songs. But at the same time, they combined it with a, a, an element of Southern rock, and there was a little bit of that strokesy New York City garage feel coming into those early records of theirs. So they they, had a they very, were legit early on. They had a very terse concise approach to melody and that whole southern rock tradition which you know most people associate with long guitar solos leonard skinner etc so they were merging these two sounds that hadn't really been put together and came up with something really interesting there was a lot of swagger a lot of that bluesy feel and yet these very melodic hard-hitting songs on that youth and young manhood record and the best of them i think is this one it's molly's chambers from kings of leon on sound opinions That is Kings of Leon with Molly's Chambers on Sound Opinions, one of the turkeys I want to pardon. Jim, what do you got next? 
Greg, I got to go to that early 70s sound called soft rock. A truly dreadful period in rock and roll after the heyday of the 60s and before the punk revival when, you know, to be as sensitive as possible with a 12-string acoustic guitar and a bunch of stoner lyrics, that was the paradigm. Uh, Fred Armisen, former Chicago comedian, and Bill Hader had that series documentary now where they've been spoofing documentaries. They did a two-part documentary last year on uh, a fictional band called Blue Jean Committee, which really wonderfully lampooned this whole sound. Uh, You know, I always get two of the soft rock bands confused. I thought first I was looking for this tune that I'm about to play by Bread. But it's not by Bread, it's by America. Doesn't matter. They're all yahoos who did the same thing. Bell bottoms, bad hair, you know, acoustic guitar, and really stupid lyrics. I need you Like the flower needs the rain You know I need you Yes, I'll start it all again that having been said, I kind of like Horse With No Name, right? This is one of the dumbest uh, top 10 hit singles of all time. right? I hate to be the English professor who's going to look at the lyrics here, but we got to look at these lyrics. Do you remember any of the lyrics? Oh, yeah. You no, know, it was a huge hit in the 70s. They're in the desert, right? They're riding a horse, right? What does he see? Plants and birds and rocks and things. things. He yeah. can't even finish the yeah. sentence, right? This is This is profound. The heat was hot. The heat was hot, right? But my favorite is the twisted uh, grammar of, because there ain't no one for to give you no pain. That sentence is wrong six ways. Right? It's stoner rock, man. Well, they, you know, here's the great thing. you know, And you know what's funny? So many people originally thought this song was Neil Young when it came out in 1972, right? Because it replaced his heart of gold on the top of the charts, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's not Neil Young. It's clearly ripping off Neil Young. Uh, but Neil, uh, in his lyrics, could be circumspect and twisted and impressionistic. These lyrics are just dumb, right? <laughs> Still, I, you know, it's a song about a horse in the desert, right? America on Sound Opinions. On the first part of the journey I was looking at all the life There were plants and birds and rocks and things There were sand and hills and rain The first thing I met was a fly with a buzz And the sky with no clouds The heat was hot
Horse with no name by America on Sound Opinions. Please, if you're just coming to this show, realize we are not celebrating these songs or these careers necessarily. We're pardoning them because it's Thanksgiving. That's we right. Be, we want to be generous. Generous. Guys. generous. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, and it, it also allows us to look at entire periods of rock where uh, there was just a, a bunch of unredeemable music coming out <laughs> by a lot of bad bands. And then every yeah. once in a while, you'd get a nugget that was just like, wow, that's that's kind of cool. Um for me, Britpop was like that. There were very few bands. I mean, this was the most celebrated rock movement in England, and there really hasn't been anything since to match its intensity in, in the mid-'90s. Um, with the exception of bands like Blur and Pulp, Blur. there were very few bands Blur will that live forever. came out of that movement that really, you could say, like, these are all-timers. Yeah. You know, people are going to make the case for this next this band that I want to play, The Verve. Uh, and again, one of those things, okay, for the for the good of our listeners, for my own good, I had to go back and listen to those four albums again just oh. to make sure I wasn't missing anything. And I pronounced them a not very good band for the, the most part. They were, not, they were way overrated, uh, pompous uh, in all the bad ways that you may think of those terms. And every man and every hand and every kiss you understand that living is for us. They had one album that I think had some good songs on it, the 1997 release Urban Hymns, and one classic. The the one great song in the Verve catalog is undeniably Bittersweet Symphony. And uh, it makes sense because they really didn't write it, according no, to really. litigation afterwards. Yeah. Uh, Keith Richards and uh, Mick Jagger wrote it uh, because what they did was they sampled an orchestral version of um, The Last Time, the Stone song, The Last Time, that had been done by the Andrew Oldham Orchestra uh, back in 1965. There was a, a famous lawsuit that occurred after this song became a huge hit. And the Stones ended up getting 100% of the writing credit on, on the tune. Because the Stones need more money. Oh, yes, of course. But nonetheless, uh, that aside, uh, you know, whoever wrote it, it, it is a beautiful melody, soaring uh, type of song. Every time it comes on the radio, I want to crank it up. It is Richard Ashcroft's finest moment in an otherwise egregious career. Um, Bittersweet Symphony by The Verve on Sound Opinions.
The Verb, a turkey of a band with a song that I want to save. It's Bittersweet Symphony on Sound Opinions. Jim, you've got one final song for us. Yeah, I'm going back to a period you already visited, Greg, with Stone Temple Pilots. It was truly extraordinary how, after that initial explosion of wonderful bands, Nirvana, first and foremost among them, uh, everything was so quickly commodified, corporatized, and turned to utter crap, you know? Mm. And Bush was one of those bands. You know, this English group led by Gavin Rossdale, was so transparently trying to ape every move that Nirvana made. You know, all right, so today, uh, they're not very well remembered, although Gavin Rossdale continues to tour and uh, is probably famous for having been married to Gwen Stefani. Rossdale's coming back. He has just been named, along with Jennifer Hudson, Will I Am of the Black Eyed Peas, and uh, Tom Jones as one of the hosts of next season's The Voice in the U.K., Oh. So not in the U.S., <laughs> not in the U.S., which is ironic because Bush was completely, utterly— They, they uh, didn't like him. Well, they were ignored in the U.K. Yeah. The Brits had better taste. They might have gone for Bittersweet Symphony, but but they, they didn't like Bush. But they were huge on modern rock radio here because, you know, Nirvana wasn't playing ball. Mm-hmm. Nirvana wasn't doing all those alternative rock radio concerts and all that. Bush would have played the opening of a Hot Topic at the yeah. mall, you know what I mean? Would have done anything. That having been said, I like the song Glycerine. Uh, partly, nobody else in the band's on it, really. It's just, <laughs> it's just Rossdale doing this kind of, uh, uh, you know, Kurt Cobain take on a, on a sort of in the pines sort of vibe. Mm-hmm. And if you listen with only half an ear, if you're hearing it for the first time, you may well say, oh, that's a Nirvana song I never heard, right? So it's a, it's a good Nirvana ripoff <laughs> as these things go. Bush with Glycerine on Sound Opinions.
don't let the days go by, Greg. <laughs> Gavin Rossdale, the auteur behind Bush, our last musical turkey. And to you listeners out there, what's one band you want to pardon? Give us a call at 888-859-1800 or connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Coming up after a short break, we remember some great artists who have recently passed away, including Leonard Cohen. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And Greg, this has been a depressing year, wow. 2016. It really it, is. It, it, you know, for many reasons, but not the least of which are the uh, musical losses. So many great artists have passed this year, and we have four of them we want to mention uh, during this show. Leon Russell, let's start with him. Died at the age of 74. I'm up on a tight wire. One side's ice and one is fire. It's a circus game with you and me. I'm up on a tightrope. Famous session player, right? Uh, you know, you name a really interesting session in the early 70s, he was probably there. Mm-hmm. With his top hat and that bushy beard, multi-instrumentalist with many talents, he'd come out of the sp- Phil Spector, posse of uh, Wall of Sound musicians, then went on to play. You know, just listen to some of these credits and how diverse. Frank Sinatra, Sam Cooke, Aretha Franklin, the Monkees. <laughs> All right, yeah. you know uh, he played on so many great sessions. Also known for leading Joe Cocker's Mad Dogs and Englishman Band, appearing beside George Harrison in 1971 at the concert for Bangladesh, and a long solo career. Probably Tightrope, his best known song. Dead at the age of 74 at his home in Nashville. Another great piano player uh, died also recently, Jim, uh, Mose Allison, oh. at, at age 89. If this life is driving you to drink, you sitting around wondering just what to think. Well, I got some consolation. I'll give it to you if I might. You know I don't worry about a thing, cause I know nothing's gonna be all I got to see Moe's play a bunch of times in New York City primarily, and what a, what a raconteur he was. He was this laid-back Southern gentleman, a very laconic sound, and at the same time, you couldn't quite put your finger on what he was doing. Is it country blues? Is it bebop jazz? It was a little bit about everything. He had a tremendous influence in, in the rock world, and that's why I think he's significant for our audience here at Sound Opinions. 
You can't imagine an artist like Randy Newman without Mose Allison's yeah. influence. It's clear that Randy Newman, that wit, that acerbic tone, that sort of laid-back drawl drawn from Mose Allison's style. And Pete Townsend, of all people, of The Who, was a huge Mose yeah. Allison fan. Uh, the Who covered uh, some of Mose Allison's songs, and uh, Townsend consistently cited Allison as an influence on his songwriting. Well, a young man ain't got nothing in the world these days. Greg, I have to mention uh, Billy Miller, a New Yorker who died at the age of 62. Miller wasn't a musician, right? This name's not going to be as well-known to many people listening to Sound Opinions, but he was one of those guys who worked tirelessly for a very long time behind the scenes to champion music that would otherwise have gone unnoticed. Uh, He was a rock archivist supreme, founded a label in 1986 called Norton Records that is credited largely with bringing back uh, forgotten heroes like Hazel Atkins, Link Ray, and the Sonics, the great Seattle Mm -hmm. garage band. Uh, he had a Kicks magazine that he ran with his life partner, Miriam Linna. They were devoted to telling these stories of what Nick Tasha's once called the unsung heroes of rock and roll. Digging deep, they ran a book company. They're putting out records, they're putting out books, they're putting out this magazine. So much great music that people in the New York underground became exposed to thanks to Billy Miller. It's a real loss to that world. But I think the loss that loomed largest was Leonard Cohen. All the sisters of mercy, they are not departed or gone. They were waiting for me when I thought that I just can't go on. And they brought me their comfort and later they brought me this song. Leonard Cohen, of course, as everyone knows by now, Jim, uh, dead at the age of 82. The loss was mourned around the world. A, a re- not only a renowned poet, but of course a great songwriter whose songs have been sung by countless singers all around the world. I saw one figure put it at 2,000 <laughs> artists covered his yeah. songs. It really is amazing, uh, the legacy he left behind. Uh, the Canadian-born artist uh, you know, moved to New York City in the 60s, and that's where his career really started to take off. That debut album, The Songs of Leonard Cohen, uh, made a huge impact, and he was welcomed into the intelligentsia in New York City. Andy Warhol and Nico and Lou Reed were fans and of Dylan. what he was doing, and Dylan was a huge fan. But I thought three things uh, were missing out of uh, many of the tributes that we saw to uh, Leonard Cohen over the last week, Jim, and we want to talk about some of those. The one area of of Cohen's life that I don't think was discussed nearly enough was the great intersection between Cohen and the great filmmaker Robert Altman. Mm. Um, Altman, uh, who made many, many great films, was an outsider in Hollywood for decades by by choice. He didn't want to play the Hollywood game. He was going to make movies under his own terms or not at all cited Cohen as a muse uh, for one of his greatest films. When he made McCabe and Mrs. Miller, sort of this anti-Western, starring Warren Beatty and Julie Christie in uh, 1971, he remembered as a younger man listening to that Cohen debut album, 
film over and over again under the influence of uh, various chemicals. Uh, right, it's only saying, like four years old at that point, exactly. but he's going back, yeah. And especially think about that record coming out in the in the Summer of Love in 67, yeah, 67. sounding like nothing else out there, <laughs> like it was from some different century. Right. Traveling lady, stay a while until the night is over. I'm just a station on your way I know I'm not your lover the, That beautiful sparse tone that he uh, got on that record evoked the sort of desolate western landscapes that uh, uh, Altman had in mind for McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And what was interesting is that he came to that realization after he made the movie. He heard uh, a Cohen song by chance just as the movie was wrapping up, and he realized those songs that Cohen wrote and recorded in 67 had been dancing around my head all these years, Mm -hmm. and they influenced this movie. i got to get some Leonard Cohen music on this soundtrack. So he ends up picking three songs, The Stranger Song, Sisters of Mercy, and Winter Lady, and they basically tell the story of the three parts of the movie. Yeah. The beginning, the middle, and the end. Classic three-act film. So without those songs, we don't have one of the greatest anti-Westerns of all time. Well, the story I love, Greg, is that Cohen uh, was asked by Altman to add a guitar riff uh, to some of the interstitial music, and, and Cohen agreed to do that, but as part of that, he saw the film, and he hated it. At first. At first. And then you know, a couple of years later, he saw it again, and he called Altman and apologized and said, you know, I miss this. This is really pretty great. I'm sorry. It's amazing. If you listen to uh, Warren Beatty's uh, dialogue in that movie, it's very, he says he's a man of very few words. Yeah. He would, he would say things like, if just one time you could be sweet without money to it. It sounds like that's a, a Cohen that, lyric. That's yeah, lifted yeah. right off a Cohen record. I've got poetry in me. He's almost saying this to himself. I know I've got it in me. And, and, and here's Cohen sort of, uh, you know, speaking to himself in, in that album. So it's amazing how those two things work. I think two of the geniuses of the 20th century that they Robert came Oldman together and, and made yeah. these, you know, basically made this one of the great uh, art pieces of our time, the soundtrack and, and the movie. It's true that all the men you knew were dealers who said they were through with dealing every time you gave them shelter. I know that kind of man. It's hard to hold the hand of anyone who's reaching for the sky just to surrender. Who is reaching for the sky just to surrender. Greg, I think the second point we really want to underscore, everyone wanted to pay tribute to this genius singer-songwriter, and rightly so. But but few critics mentioned that Leonard Cohen often was not the best one to deliver his own songs. He was ill-served often throughout much of his career on his uh, studio discography by overproduction. Right. right, Starts out nice and spare, songs of Leonard Cohen, 67, uh, songs from a room, slightly less so, 1969. Then whether it's uh, you know an increasing uh, distrust of his own ability to deliver these songs because he's got this very limited voice or record company pressure, hard to say which, both perhaps, the productions become more and more overblown, pushing his voice to the rear, and, and he loses the spotlight on his own studio. 
studio albums. I really cannot recommend for any listener who is intrigued by Cohen, uh, you know, younger person, to go to any of the studio albums as the perfect introduction because they all fall flat one way or another. And then by the time you get to the 80s, uh, you've got these producers who are enamored of digital synthesizers. Right. The worst sound ever. Jazz police are looking through my folders. Jazz police are talking to my niece. Jazz police have got their final orders. Jazz are drop your accents, jazz police. So, as a result, many people know Cohen's songs through others' interpretations of them. Whether you start at the very beginning with Judy Collins and Bird on a Wire and Suzanne. Suzanne takes you down to a place by the river. Or, or you go to Hallelujah. Right. We, we've got to deal with Alleluia. There's been so much said about Alleluia. It is one of the few unequivocally perfect pop songs in musical history. I, I don't think a, a single line or note is out of place, but not on Cohen's version. It comes out in 1984, and it's sappy and maudlin and overproduced and saccharine. Now I've heard there was a secret chord that David played, and it pleased the Lord, but you don't really You and I agree, John Cale, on Fragments of a Rainy Season, does the perfect version. Jeff Buckley, very close second, but really, it's such a great song. You almost, almost anybody who tackles it, you know, Kate McKinnon on the cold open of Saturday Night Live yeah. last week, coming out and delivering, I think, three verses. Uh, you know, she's not a singer; she, she's a comedian uh, whose musical. I mean, it was perfect. It was perfect. It's such a great song. Almost nobody can screw it up except Leonard Cohen did initially. <laughs> Even though it all went wrong. I'll stand before the Lord of song with nothing on my tongue but hallelujah. So part three of this discussion, Jim, is that uh, Cohen does eventually figure out some of these uh, bad production choices that he was making in the 70s and 80s and even he was a in the slow 90s. Starter. Uh, and, and gets it figured out late in his career. He gets like a second, a third chance uh, to get these songs right, and he does. Uh, it's an amazing uh, turnaround at the end of his career, virtually unprecedented. And it starts in the most unpredictable fashion, a lawsuit that involves Cohen and his longtime manager. 2005. Uh, He's been in this monastery, this Zen Buddhist monastery. People think we're never going to hear from Leonard Cohen again. Uh, he, he discovers that this woman, Kelly Lynch, longtime manager, uh, had taken $5 million from his retirement fund. Yeah. He's left with almost nothing. He sues her and wins. But she doesn't have any money, so he doesn't get any of it back. You know, the, the fact that, uh, you know, some people might say, well, he had to go out to make money under duress. You know, what kind of art is going to that lead to? Yeah, well, good things don't come from that. It led to one of the greatest career renaissances in, in music history, as far as I'm concerned. Here's a man in his late 70s, between the years 2008 and 2013, plays nearly 400 concerts. That's extraordinary. You and I went to a bunch of them. Yeah. You know, these were three-hour shows. Incredible shows. He was he was giving himself in a way that I'd never seen him before. He used to be somewhat diffident performer, you know, keeping that audience at arm's length. Yeah. This was a man who was like, you know, he would get down on one knee, and it was yeah. like he was offering a sacrament. You know, he was like... With a big band, yeah. but one that never overplayed or overpowered right. him. Live in London, right? That's, that's 2009. the record. 
2009, uh, what an extraordinary record. 26 songs, every Leonard Cohen song you want. So I said earlier, if you are looking for where to enter this catalog, this is the place, 2009. Not many times you can say over a five-decade career, go to one of the later recordings, but it's got every song delivered in in a much stronger uh, version, including Hallelujah. He learned from the people who covered it. Yeah, he figured out how to sing that song and deliver that song, more, more importantly. I remember when I moved in you and the holy dove she was moving to and every single breath that we And Jim, the final three studio albums, uh, which we reviewed forgotten. on the show, uh, 2012, Old Ideas, 2014, Popular Problems, 2016, You Want It Darker. How many artists can say they finished their career with three of the strongest albums in their, of whole catalog. their life? Yeah. And Leonard Cohen did exactly that. So in terms of career renaissances, this is virtually unprecedented in music history for an artist in their late 70s, early 80s to be making work at the highest level, the way Leonard Cohen went out. What an extraordinary life. What a way to end that life. I'll cut the darkness. It was drinking from your cup. I'll cut the darkness. Drinking from your cup. I said, is this contagious? said just drink it up next week on sound opinions we revisit our interview with john bryan an amazing resume that ranges from paul thomas anderson films to kanye west greg sound opinions has been produced by brendan banizak evan chong and alex claiborne on sound opinions everyone's a critic so now it's time to hear what you have to say how you doing? Sorry you can't get through. Why don't you leave your name and your number and I'll get back to you. Hey, how are you doing? Sorry you can't get through. Why don't you leave your name uh, and your number and I'll get back to you. New messages. Uh, hey fellas, this is Travis in the mountains of Northeast Tennessee. I just wanted to say how much I love your your show, and particularly your album dissections. I spent most of my youth in the mid-80s and 90s listening to hardcore and indie rock, and I, in hindsight, I, I, uh, I realized how much I missed out of the great music that was happening outside of that genre at the time. Your album dissections are like little mini-history courses. You give us this great historical, cultural context, the music and why it matters. Last week's uh, show on Marvin Gaye was totally fantastic. Love the show. Look forward to it every week. So, thanks again, guys. Hi, my name's Dan. I'm from Baltimore, Maryland. I uh, just checked out the Music of Canada show, which was great. Uh, like a lot of your listeners, probably been thinking a lot about Canada for the past four days. And would encourage anybody who loves Canadian indie rock to check out the Winnipeg Acts a Weaker Than. 
Uh, they put out four amazing records. Uh, one great song called Flea from a Cat Named Virtue. It's a story told from a cat's point of view. It's truly, truly great, great band. Thanks so much for a great show. Thank you, Sound Opinions, for doing what you do every week. Hey, Greg. Hey, Jim. It's Sean Rios. I was a bit disappointed that you left out the Tragically Hip, a band that has really affected an entire culture, identity of Canada, but also something I heard here in Chicago in 1992. A song like Last of the Unplugged Gem, or even just spinning the first like half of their live record, Life Between Us, with that song Grace 2. amazing. It's just incredible to hear them playing in front of 60,000 people on a record. So I love the, the, the whole Canada show. I just wish they had really included this band. Thanks a lot. Jim and Greg, this is Peter El Cerrito, California. I just listened to your uh, Canadian music show and, well, I mean, what amazing timing because I've, like a lot of my fellow Americans, I've been sitting here considering uh, making the exodus uh, up to that other part of North America and getting away from the horror that we all face. But, I mean, I was starting to get depressed about the lack of good music that you were talking about up there. Then I remembered something. I remembered that the Poppy family were from Canada. And I'll tell you, if Susan Jacks and Terry Jacks were still together and still making music and still the Poppy family today, I would definitely move up there in a heartbeat. Evil grows in the dark the sun it never shines evil grows in cracks and holes and lives in people's minds the poppy family was just one of the greatest sort of only vaguely recognized in the u.s dark pop bands i don't know they were like the carpenters on downers and uh only from canada could something that good have come? So I think you guys missed the boat on the, on the Poppy family. Oh, Canada. Bye. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.